Peace Corps gives us a chance to show a side of our country which is too often submerged. Our desire to live in peace, our desire to be of help. There can be no greater service to our country and no source of pride more real than to be a member of the Peace Corps of the United States. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lloyd, and I'm here to help tell the stories of current and returned Peace Corps volunteers. If you like what you hear today, be sure to connect with me over on Instagram at My Peace Corps Story, on Facebook by searching for My Peace Corps Story, and as always, over at MyPeaceCorpsStory.com. If you have been listening to this show and enjoying it, uh, maybe consider leaving a review for the show over on Apple Podcast. Five-star reviews are extremely appreciated, but more than anything, I want to know what you think so I can better serve my audience. Head on over there, leave a review, tell me what you want to hear on this show, or connect with me one of the various other ways. If you are a current or returned Peace Corps volunteer, also consider maybe telling your story on the podcast. I can always have more stories, so if I have recently done an episode with someone in a country that you served in, do not let that dissuade you from reaching out to tell your story. On this week's episode, I have a very special guest, the current director of the United States Peace Corps, Jody Olson, who served in Tunisia as a Peace Corps volunteer with her husband. We talk about her Peace Corps experience, why she joined the Peace Corps, and her life and career after Peace Corps that eventually led her to serving as the director. Then at the end, I get into some of the questions that you all, the listeners, wanted to ask Jody. Without further ado, here's the My Peace Corps Story podcast. This is this is this is this is my my Peace Corps Peace Corps my Peace Corps my Peace Corps story story story. I am Jody Olson, and this is my Peace Corps story. Hey, Jody, how are you doing? I'm doing just fine. I am excited to talk to you because if the listeners don't already know, you are the current director of the United States Peace Corps. That I am, and I'm excited, I'm honored, and I'm humbled to be in this position. I began Peace Corps 53 years ago, I believe, as a Peace Corps volunteer in Tunisia for two years. It fundamentally changed my life. I have been in and out of Peace Corps many times subsequent to that as a country director in Togo, mm-hmm. as a regional director for Asian Pacific for chief of staff, and as deputy director. And each time I thought, hmm, this is wonderful. I have a chance to give back based on my own Peace Corps experience. And then I went away and did something else, and voila, I had a chance to come back. Uh, I might say that this time I was quite surprised, Mm -hmm. and which makes me feel even more honored and humbled to be able to be in this position now. Yeah, I I, I can't imagine. Uh, Did you did you ever consider when you were a volunteer in Tunisia that Peace Corps was something that you were going to to turn into a, a career? 
Did you ever know at that point that you, you wanted to continue in some form or fashion of Peace Corps? You probably didn't think that eventually one day you'd be director, but did you? were you thinking in some capacity that you would like to maybe continue service? I had no idea <laughs> that uh, my journey began as a junior in college at the University of Utah. I was at a sorority dinner, mm-hmm. and a person stood up, a guy, and you don't normally get guys in sorority dinners. He spoke for 10 minutes. He mm-hmm. sat down, and I went to myself, I want to do that. It's the first time I really heard about Peace Corps, 1964. Mm-hmm. I was engaged, so I broke the news to my fiancé the next day, <laughs> and he went, oh, my Okay, we might figure that out. We got married about three months later, and a year and a half later, we were on the plane as a married couple going to Tunisia. In doing so, we had no idea. Uh, I was going to be a social worker. He was going to be an architect. Mm -hmm. This was a chance to, let's say, discover architecture, which Tunisia has a lot of, and to experience a broader life beyond Salt Lake City, Utah. Mm -hmm. And then we were going to come back and continue with the journey that we had already mapped out. But I think as almost anybody who has had a Peace Corps experience knows, it changes you and you find yourself mapping out different experiences or stumbling across different experiences when you've been a Peace Corps volunteer. Mm -hmm. Most definitely. And when you started the process of applying to the Peace Corps, uh, you were of the system where you applied generally and you were told where to go. Did you have any preconceived notion of where you'd be serving as a volunteer? Were you open for anything? And were you surprised when you heard Tunisia? What is this place, Tunisia, that I'm going to go spend two years in? Well, as you imply, uh, there was no Google, there was Mm. no internet, there was uh, no way of getting much of any information except going to the library and checking out a Britannica encyclopedia. Mm -hmm. We had heard that Tunisia had the only architecture program in Peace Corps, Mm. and that that particular program gave you half credit towards your licensure by being a Peace Corps volunteer. So we specifically asked for Tunisia Mm -hmm. just so that uh, Bob could continue uh, getting uh, architecture experience. We got a letter a little later saying, oops, the Tunisia program's full. How would you like to go to Turkey? Uh, I'm sure we can find some construction sites for you in (laughs) Turkey. And we decided, okay, we've now committed. It's okay that he doesn't get licensure credit. We'll go to Turkey. Mm-hmm. Then a month or two later, they sent us another letter saying, oops, we had to close the Turkey program. <laughs> and then they said, well, we looked, and it didn't look like either one of you have any skills. <laughs> So we're going to send you to India as chicken farmers. Mm -hmm. Well, Bob actually grew up on a farm, but they didn't have chickens. So we made another call, and we said, okay, we will go to India as chicken farmers, but one last chance. We would love to go to Tunisia, and that worked. 
And so with 48 hours notice, we got on the airplane. In fact, they called Friday night and they said, if you can be on the airplane Sunday morning, we'll let you go to Tunisia. And we were on that airplane and Brown University, and we trained for three months at Brown and then went to Tunisia. So it it's that hybrid of mm-hmm. ultimately going where we wanted to go, but we experienced a few other countries along the way. Mm-hmm. And uh, this will not sound too unfamiliar from my, a lot of volunteers' experience uh, that I've talked to of being told they're going to one program, that program being closed, being reassigned, assigned again, and just bounced around. So it's nice that uh, some things in Peace Corps, you got to be flexible. That's all about uh, being a flexible. Volunteer. Yes, certainly was. And what it taught us in those few months was being flexible. And we started because we wanted to do architecture. Mm-hmm. Well, Bob wanted to do architecture, but we appreciated that we really wanted to go in the Peace Corps, mm-hmm. and that it was going to be okay, whatever it turned out to be. Mm-hmm. Well, Bob was going to do architecture. What were you going to be doing, or what did you do as a volunteer in Tunisia? I mostly taught English. Okay. And uh, I had gotten a degree in education, so I felt that I had had some training. I discovered as I started being an English teacher, I had 40 14-year-old boys, Tunisian mm-hmm. Students, none of them knew a word of English. I knew almost no French, and I knew no Arabic. So there I was on that very first day in that classroom, and I'd only been in country three days because at that point we had trained in at Brown. Mm-hmm. And so you then go to country, you get off the plane, you go to your site and walk in the classroom and begin. I think I'm totally grateful that we now do training in country. Yes, So I walked in, and there I was. And these 40 boys were looking at me. I appreciated I had no words in common. And what was I going to do? And I looked at the door to my left, and I thought I could walk through this door and be done with this experience. And then I thought, well, Bob's, I think, going to like his experience. And my parents said goodbye for two years, so I guess I better (laughs) do something. So I stepped forward, and I said, hello, my name is Mrs. Olson. And that began began the experience. But that moment was, all these years later, I still remember it so intently because it probably was the most frightening moment of my whole experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, taking that, that first step into the unknown and just standing on the edge of, am I, am I really going to go through with this? Yes. Am I really going to go through with it? I found, uh, because I didn't want them to know that I really didn't speak their language. Mm-hmm. So I decided that right from the beginning, I would conduct the class in English, introducing a few new words every day. Well, it wasn't hard for them to begin to realize that I didn't speak much of French or no Arabic. Over time, my French got quite good, and I did learn the Arabic. But for that particularly first semester, it was me pretending. But what was fun was that I was using a lot of uh, chalkboard Mm -hmm. and drawing lots of pictures and putting lots of names under pictures. And one of the learnings for me in that process was that I would draw pictures of Tunisian tables and Tunisian chairs, and I would put the little artifacts in them that were traditional. 
I uh, drew pictures of the rugs and, you know, we would go to the donkey market. And so I would draw pictures of doing that. And over a little while, I would have my students go, Mrs., Mrs., you like our rugs? And I would say, oh, my heavens, they're beautiful. Mrs., Mrs., you like our tables? Well, yes, I have them in my house. What I was learning as they were asking me these questions and hearing me be so excited Mm -hmm. was, oh, you like it here. Mm -hmm. You like us. You appreciate us. Now, they didn't quite use those words, but what I was beginning to feel each week that for them it was a chance to see a foreigner Mm -hmm. that they had not seen before except for some of the French uh, cooperants who had been there but someone who came in to be part of them Mm -hmm. and that moment over that week in those two weeks and beginning to realize that oh my heavens I am part of them. I am part of being here. And I honor them, and they're honoring that I am respecting them. And that word respect became so important Mm -hmm. in appreciating how you can communicate and how you can help change happen when you respect. Mm -hmm. And it was this enormous gift that those students were able to give me. And from that over time, uh, I would get invited over to their houses, and it would be the father and the son in the living room uh, with Bob and me and having our couscous. And then I would say, well, I want to thank the people who made the meal. And so they would take me out back, and there would be the mother and the daughters (laughs) out working on the canoe, which is the coals where they cooked. And I would have a whole separate conversation with them. And that's partly where my Arabic came, was that uh, they didn't speak French, so I would go out and be laughing with them after I had had the very formal and very proper dinner with the father and my student son. Mm-hmm. And I also remember that uh, couscous is the main food, but the couscous in Tunisian couscous, unlike Moroccan couscous, is very hot. They take the couscous and then they just grind up hot red peppers. And so in the beginning, Bob and I would be crying and they would go, oh, we forgot. Oh, yes, I guess you're Americans, aren't you? But over time, I I could just get that couscous down and ask for more. Uh, But it was that wonderful process of finding my way into being part of these terrific families. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, it it comes from being there. And as you said, taking interest and expressing that, yes, I I like your rugs. I like Mm -hmm. your tables. I'm enjoying experiencing this culture here. And then these doors start opening that you wouldn't have had if you were doing a shorter term service. That's for for me one of the biggest benefits of Peace Corps that you are of the community living there and you have that long time horizon 
to start making these relationships. Well, that is so true. That that first fall, uh, you know, as I'm working my way in, I still was not good with language. I'm not a very good language learner. That was a painful reality for me that I thought I was going to become pretty fluent, but that wasn't part of my skill base. But I was working with the months and trying to find a rhythm for what I was doing. And I'll never forget it was January and February of my first year. So I had been there since early September. And it had gotten very cold. And cold enough that just a sidebar note, my Bob's parents from Provo, Utah sent us about 20 boxes of jello. <laughs> and we didn't quite know how to write them a letter back saying that I just wasn't quite sure how we were going to use that jello because we didn't have a refrigerator. And I remember the jello sitting on the counter. Well, not on the counter, on the shelf. Well, when it got December, I went, aha. <laughs> and so I would heat up some water, and I would put it in, and I would stir up the jello. And the next morning, it was nice, firm jello. So we ate jello in December, January, and February in honor of Bob's parents. But what I'm saying by that is that I was cold, mm -hmm. and there was no heating anywhere. And it would hover about two or three degrees above freezing. And it was a time that I was asking myself, why am I here? I'm cold. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I'm connecting with these students. I'm struggling with the language and really feeling down. Mm -hmm. And so I would get up and I remember this book that I had brought called the Canadian Royal Air Force Exercise Book. And so I would do a half hour of exercises to warm up to come face to face with the fact I'm now going to go teach. And doing that every morning while it was so cold for about a month or about six weeks was so important to try to help me turn the page mm -hmm. to get to the point where I felt integrated, as you mentioned, that I felt integrated, that I felt that I cared for people, they cared for me. And that I was going to miss them. Mm -hmm. But I was forever thankful for the Canadian Royal Air Force exercise book to get me through those two months mm -hmm. when it was cold. And the community that you were living in, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Was this a large town, a, a village, something in between? What did your community look like? Unlike a lot of Peace Corps volunteers, I was in the third largest city. I was in Seuss. Not only was it the third largest city, it was right on the Mediterranean Sea, and it had beautiful beaches. So uh, we lived in the middle of the Medina, mm -hmm. which was a lot of fun because it was very traditional. And I walked uh, through the Medina. We had a three-room house. We had uh, electricity. We had a well, and I'm embarrassed to say we had hot and cold running water. There are so many current Peace Corps volunteers that are so angry right now. I'm sure that's true. We also had a Turkish toilet, and uh, Bob did some slats over the Turkish toilet because the shower was on top, 
And so I could take a hot shower every morning. And in these, so, and we had three wonderful rooms and then a nice courtyard. And we had tiles, the uh, traditional mm -hmm. Arab tiles. And so I lived quite well, relatively speaking. There was always a lot of activity in the Medina because mm -hmm. there was a lot of activity in the city. Uh, it was one of the traditional Roman cities of 2,000 years earlier. Mm -hmm. And it also had a lot of Turkish history to it. So you felt that you were, as well as the Arab history that goes back to 400, 500 AD. So I felt that I was living to some extent, even in a museum, mm -hmm. and an artfully beautiful history of uh, culture and art mm -hmm. that were embedded in the tiles throughout. And I would take about a 15-minute walk to the Lycée de Garçon, and it was the largest Lycée in Seuss, and it was one of the more prominent Lycées in Tunisia. So to suggest that I was physically struggling, I can't say that. <laughs> and I sometimes don't talk about physically my experience because it's kind of embarrassing because it was actually quite nice. Mm -hmm. We had um, several of us, we heard that uh, Jack Vaughn, who was the country, uh, who was the Peace Corps director at the time, was going to come and see us in Seuss. And we were all looking around at our respective places where we lived and we went, whoops, what are we going to do? We thought, oh, why don't we rent a hut and we'll take him to the hut or we'll take him to the little sort of the fisherman village that was right outside. And then we looked at each other and went, no, we got to be honest. And so we uh, brought him and shared and it, from what I understand years later, it was very memorable for him mm -hmm. uh, to see us. But what I mention this in part because what I find important is the physical environment, the emotional environment, the mental environment, the cultural environment, linguistical environment, all come to play. Mm -hmm. And that we're adjusting and we're working with all of those. And we can have a wonderful physical environment, mm -hmm. but we can not be connecting emotionally, or we could be struggling with a language, or we're having trouble connecting with the host family. So I appreciate that it's a totality of an experience that we're working with. And I have worked over the years to not judge anything, mm -hmm. to go participate and enjoy whatever that experience is that any Peace Corps volunteer is having mm -hmm. because it's different. It changes us for a lifetime, regardless of what that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, you said that you were uh, kind of hesitant to talk about the the lifestyle that you were living since it was so nice. But I've talked to many volunteers and this idea of, you know, posh core comes up that some people live in these beautiful places or have the electricity and running water. Well, I didn't have any of that. And that's not the stuff that I struggled with. I didn't have electricity, running water, any of the modern conveniences, but that's not where the difficulty came from. It was the isolation and the struggling with the language and trying to integrate. And that's the stuff that's common across 
all volunteers. Just to uh, stay with that thought that I totally agree with, that you're in being in a big city, well, mm -hmm. a big enough city, and having 40 students in a classroom and you're the teacher and they're the students, you're trying, you're trying to find a place where you can belong. Mm -hmm. And in cities, it's a little harder to find a place to belong. And so what happened for me was about seven months into my experience, I asked one of the Arabic teachers at the lycée to teach me Arabic. And he and his family lived in a even nicer house at the edge of the Medina, but he would invite me over for lunch to teach me Arabic. And they became like a host family over mm -hmm. the next 15, 16 months. And I learned to cook with Suad, and I would tell jokes with Mahmoud, and I would play with the kids. And the grand grandfather had done the Hajj, and uh, his stories about the Hajj, his long stories about his background and the family background in Seuss, that that's what finally was able to take me from where I was that January, February, and March mm -hmm. in where do I belong to I belong to this family. And the gifts that we were able to give each other as a family during those 16 months was the greatest impact on me as a Peace Corps volunteer. Mm -hmm. And your service had a, had a, an amazing impact on you and led you to a, a continuing, eventually, a, a career with Peace Corps. Was there any one thing that, that you took away from your service? A, maybe it is something that you learned or a story that you just look back on that kind of fueled you in, in your next chapter and next chapter and next chapter in working with the Peace Corps all these many years? Separate from working from the Peace Corps, something that really uh, affected me is as I would go visit my students and hear the students' stories, they talked about their extended family. They talked about their grandmothers in the beds in the living room and the gifts that their grandmothers gave them and the conversations they had, particularly with their grandmothers and to some extent with their grandfathers. And I became very attached to that idea of a more integrated extended family mm -hmm. that I was not feeling from my own experience in the United States. So when I came back, I was even more intent on my social work, master's degree. But in that, I got even more attached to looking at extended families and older people and older people more effectively integrated integrating into communities and, you know, into the world around them. So my PhD is in um, adult development and aging, and it was specifically from my Peace Corps experience. I wanted to choose really the cultural representation mm -hmm. and working with older people in the U.S. with the idea of community integration family integration, storytelling, bringing the, uh, many older persons who were feeling that they were on the edges 
of what was a very integrated life back into an integrated life. And so the work that I did was all related to that. And that came about because of what I learned at Peace Corps. I had never thought uh, upwards of 10 years after I came back that I would ever go back overseas. Never even occurred to me that the gift of Peace Corps was some of the gifts I got with social work, maybe listening, mm-hmm. observing, stopping, attending, respecting, honoring, being present. Those words became very important to me. And then technically, all of adult development. What happened was almost accidentally, well, it was accidentally, was Bob, who was an architect in Baltimore, got a job in Togo working for USAID. And so I agreed, uh, I was just getting tenure, that I would take a leave of absence and go to Togo with him. We had two children, seven and ten. And I was reluctant, actually, to do that because I could see my academic career going forward Mm -hmm. in gerontology. And I applied because I found out the Peace Corps country directorship was open, so I applied and went through the process and got the job. So I went over to Togo as Peace Corps country director, and Bob was working with AID, and then our two kids were in school. Well, what happened then was, again, another profound moment, because I remember being in the Togolese office in Lome. There were about 35 uh, staff at that point, essentially all Togolese, a couple from Ghana. And recognizing that we were a team, and we were an important team, that there were 134 Peace Corps volunteers in Togo. And each of their two-year experience was going to live with them the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. That I remember saying to the staff, because I was drawing on my own experience, they don't scrub this out of their brain. No, it's there. It stays there. It's alive and well. We have a responsibility of making it the strongest and the most effective two years for them that we can. Because if we can do that, they can do that for their community, and their communities can do it for Togo. And I remember as these words were coming out of my mouth, thinking, oh my heavens, what an opportunity we have. I hadn't really thought about it this way, because before I had been the volunteer. Mm -hmm. And I got such satisfaction during those two years I was in Togo, one, watching volunteers change, and equally importantly, watching how Togolese staff were so intent on the gifts that they could give the volunteers, that they could give their country through Peace Corps. And having that experience reframed what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I never went back to the University of Maryland, at least not for 35 years. But I, I wanted to stay in situations where we were 
changing lives, where we were providing an environment of self-discovery for people who then could make a difference. And it became a passion for me. And so whether I was working with Peace Corps or with Youth Exchange, which I did for several years, or with the Fulbright Program, Senior <clears throat> Scholar Program, which I did for several years, or uh, on contract with USAID International Development Groups, it was always about how to frame that experience so somebody changes significantly, mm -hmm. and in that process, they can change so many other people. Mm -hmm. But that came 10 years after being a Peace Corps volunteer. 10 years after being a Peace Corps volunteer and in a role that was never even on your radar. And I find it funny that you were the one who first wanted to go to Peace Corps and told Bob about this, this thing. And then Bob was the one who then said, well, I've got now I have this opportunity in, in Togo. So it's kind of the roles flipped and who brought who where. It completely flipped, totally flipped. And it was, it was all part of a very interesting journey for both of us because he stayed in international development work at, you know, after being an architect in Baltimore for 10 years. I stayed in international work after having um, been in school and at the university for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And for me, I, I also like the fact that I know a lot of volunteers come out of their service, they start down a trajectory, and they don't know if it's necessarily the right one, but it, it can and it will shift, and it will shift in ways that you don't expect, and it may be 10 years that it, you know, until you come back to your Peace Corps service. Because me and my role right now, I was always thinking, well, maybe I'll continue with international development. I didn't go that way but there's always an opportunity for me to, to return to it. Well, and to stay with that point, because I think part of why going to Togo reluctantly, very reluctantly, uh, and then discovering what I thought, this really is my purpose. When I had been at the university before then, I was teaching in addition to um, working on my PhD, that... I wasn't sure I wanted to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. And so after many other roles, and so the role I had at the University of Maryland just before coming as Peace Corps director, I again was in the classroom teaching graduate students in social work and appreciating with those eight years where my Peace Corps was for me yet again mm -hmm. that was different from when I was at the University of Maryland in my late 20s, early 30s, that having been a volunteer, but then having the years of discovery of what did it mean to me in all these other experiences, I was ready at Maryland to give back to a whole other generation mm -hmm. of students that was... I was sort of finally pulling together after a few decades of what Peace Corps had been for me and who I was. I finally could come and frame it as to who I really thought I was because of all that experience. And then I was really ready to teach. Mm -hmm. Something I had no idea I was going to do. It was an accident. As I was finishing being deputy director here, I was going to go into retirement. I seem to have a hard time going into retirement. 
But I got a call from the dean of the school of social work, and he said, how would you like to come and be a visiting professor for six months? Mm-hmm. That lasted eight years. But it really pulled together for me all the twists and turns of our life mm-hmm. and how Peace Corps frames so much of those twists and turns. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And now in your role as director, when you were sort of told or pegged or had that phone call of, would you be interested or you've been called upon to serve in this role, how how did that happen? I'm not quite sure. Um, <laughs> I'm really not quite sure. But I know that, you know, people suggested that I had served with before because I had served in other administrations mm-hmm. that maybe this would be a, a possibility. And so somewhere in that process, I guess the word was passed around that made this possible. But I had, re- I was regional director in the Reagan administration. I was chief of staff in the Bush uh, HW administration. I was deputy director in the Bush W administration. So I seem to have a reputation to be in those administrations. Mm-hmm. And so I I think it in part was a continuation of service uh, during those years. Okay. And in your role, you've had many probably challenges, but opportunities. What has excited you most uh, being director and what you've been able to do? What excites me the most is... One, Peace Corps, and to sustain what Peace Corps has been for 58 years. Mm -hmm. And it sounds strange to say it is about sustaining what we have done well for 58 years. But we're about keeping the mission, real peace and friendship, and those three goals. Mm Mm-hmm technical support, sharing who you are, bringing that experience back home. That is what shapes every one of us. That is what shapes the communities. That's what shapes the leadership of countries who started as a student under a Peace Corps volunteer. That's what is shaping our global impact. Mm -hmm. And I feel among the exciting opportunities now, is sustain and honor and respect that mission and uh, and goals. And what I'm finding that is important is I ask the question, why? Mm-hmm. Why does this work? Why does the president of Ecuador tell me that when he was a child— he could describe exactly why he was impacted by his Peace Corps volunteer. And now all the years later, he's president. Trying to think, what is it? Because this is not the way these kinds of points of impact really occur. Mm-hmm. And why the goals in an integrated way and being equal is a critical message for me that 
it is the language, it's the culture that builds the trust, that makes the difference, that has somebody plant a tree that otherwise would not have planted a tree. That you've got 40 women that you're working with and you're helping teach them how to dry vegetables for the dry season. You don't just go in and do that. Mm-hmm. It's what you said earlier about two years. You go in and you sit with them. You drink tea with them. You play with the kids. You learn the local language. You laugh as you decide which cloth you're going to make your dress out of. And they laugh with you. That's goal two and goal three. But it creates the environment for when you say to this, well, let's look at what a co-op might look like. Let's look at how we can get the materials through SPA, through the small project assistance, to get enough money for the drying equipment. Mm -hmm. Let's look at how we can turn it into a small business Mm -hmm. and sell it. That happens because they trust you, because they know that you're there for them. Mm -hmm. And having to, and working hard to articulate that unique way that we are volunteers, unlike any other agency or any other organization, I have never found one that combines those three elements. That's what makes us different. That's what makes us strong. That's why presidents of countries invite us back. That's why they want us to grow in their countries. That's why we honor that experience for the rest of our lives. So first and foremost for me is the, is keeping that mission and three goals, keeping them energized, alive, integrated, to be as strong as we can be, because we understand that no one else is offering, giving, sharing, being Mm -hmm. the way a Peace Corps volunteer is and does. With that, I also get very excited about what we're calling is that return on investment Mm -hmm. that I think we have understated or not stated who we have become because of that Peace Corps experience. Mm -hmm. And we tell stories and we have groups and we share with each other and with our families if they'll listen to us. But I want presidents of universities to see clearly that their Arab studies program is stronger because of Peace Corps. Mm -hmm. I want administrators of county school systems to appreciate that those five principles that they have working with children with special needs is because of Peace Corps. Mm -hmm. I want private employers who are doing team building for new products to understand that you hire a return Peace Corps volunteer because that person knows how to do teams with diversity Mm -hmm. and to show respect. These elements 
are quiet, and we've been quiet with them, the 235,000 returned Peace Corps volunteers. I want us to sing and dance them. I want us to have the millions of Americans, other Americans, appreciate that it is going into another culture, another environment, another language, another country, another kind of an experience. The strength that gives us to be better at all the professional areas, personal areas, community areas that we are in the United States. And I get excited about strengthening that link, strengthening that opportunity, strengthening that collective story. Mm -hmm. The other part that I get very excited about, I think you can tell by my voice, I'm very excited about those first two parts, is technology. Um, my son is all technology and my grandson is all technology. And so I must have a little bit of technology in my DNA somewhere because I love playing with computers and smartphones and trying new IT products. I'm not great, but I love working with them. But appreciating that every Peace Corps volunteer today has some experience, some have pretty extraordinary kinds of experiences in this field just by who they are. And I think the opportunities today in their communities and with students, because you now can use solar power to string together, pull together, keep uh, phones going. You now can, in a box, string computers together and build networks and so build systems. You can teach internet and work aggressively with better use of the internet, even without electricity. So we naturally, in both primary projects and secondary projects, I think can do even more as Peace Corps volunteers to bring forward, connect, uh, encourage, and get uh, communities and students where we work with around the world even more engaged than they already are. Mm -hmm. That in many of these countries, they're skipping some of the steps in the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, they've given up on all those <laughs> wires and just put up the solar panel mm -hmm. and go for it. So I, I think on a technological basis, there's a lot of ways that we can strengthen that interaction. And I believe strongly that the human side is stronger even as we work with the technology side. It enables the human connectiveness in mm -hmm. ways that we've not been able to do before. Mm -hmm. Well, those are several things to be excited about in your role. And you actually hit on a question that uh, was asked uh, to me by the, the listeners and followers of the My Peace Corps Story podcast because I was very excited to come on, uh, to come here and, and talk with you. And I wanted to extend the opportunity to my followers to ask you some questions. And I've, I've printed out uh, all the questions that were asked, but we don't have time uh, to get to all of them. And some of them, uh, you, we could probably spend hours breaking down of, of how to respond and how to think about them. Uh, so this is just a, a starting of the conversation to hear what you as the director uh, think about some of the things that the Peace Corps community is talking about, uh, thinking about experiencing. So I've, I've 
picked out a few of these questions. So for anybody who uh, doesn't have uh, their question that's being asked, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I couldn't get to all of them, uh, but I, I have uh, printed them out so uh, the director can can have them and, and think about them. Uh, but starting off, uh, I just thought that this question was kind of fun and lighthearted and goofy. Uh, but if Peace Corps was a type of food, what would it be? What comes to mind um, is a grain bowl. Mm-hmm. Now, I've been discovering in D.C. that grain bowls or bread bowls are becoming the big thing mm-hmm. that you eat. And so I think of Peace Corps when I think of one of these grain bowls because you get to choose the grain uh, or you get to mix the grain and then there's almost anything you can put in it, but you've got different kinds of vegetables, you've got different kinds of leafy green things, you've got nuts, you've got different sauces that you put on, you can put on, uh, you know, different kinds of meats or tofu, and you don't quite know what it's going to taste like. And, you know, I just think of you going down the serving line and, you know, here's a whole set of little baskets of food that you put in and then you sit down at the table and you put your fork in and you say, gee, I wonder what I've created. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of Peace Corps because of being a Peace Corps volunteer. Because when you start building your little grain bowl, you might start with some rice over there and you think, I am so excited about this rice. But by the time all those other elements have gotten added to it and you're taking that first bite, you might not be able to find the rice anymore or it might have such a different taste you don't recognize it. That we have a frame that you're going the Peace Corps is 27 months, 12 weeks of training and the goals and the mission, but no two people have it the same way. Mm-hmm. No two countries offer it the same way. It's like that green bowl. It's like, oh my heavens, I wonder what it's going to be. And I'm sure it's going to be good, whatever it is. And there might be a part over here that I'll just leave behind and eat all the other part. Well, I've taken the analogy too far. But the idea being that you don't know what you're creating. And you don't know what you're creating until after you're done. And then you go, wow, that was good. Staying with, which is not quite the grain ball, ball, but when I was talking with a whole group of RPCVs that were in the Foreign Service at Department of State, one of the uh, Foreign Service officers, she said, when I was a Peace Corps volunteer, and I don't remember where, but she said, my experiences were up and down. They were, oh my heavens, there were some I thought, am I even going to make it through the day or the week? And that you know, the two years came and she had mixed but mostly good feelings about that experience. And she said, I remember getting on the airplane and as I was crossing over the Atlantic Ocean, I suddenly couldn't remember any of the bad experiences. And she said, you know, I've hardly thought of any of them since. (laughs) And it's that something as I think about with that grain bowl (laughs) or about the Peace Corps experience that as we're having the individual experiences, you know, some of them are great and some of them are pretty lousy. And you think, oh, I don't know if I want to put those two things together again. And yet it creates an environment at the end of that time that 
you are so proud of Mm -hmm. and so caring about and so respectful of. Mm -hmm. Well, a grain bowl. (laughs) Thank you for that response. And then getting into another question that uh, the listeners were interested in, uh, how can Peace Corps uh, change to better reflect the diversity of the United States? Are there ways that Peace Corps can improve and support minorities, be it of race, age, socioeconomic background, et cetera, during service? Because I know looking back on my service, the group of volunteers that I was with, they all kind of looked like me. Uh, there, there wasn't that large amount of diversity. So what measures is Peace Corps taking to make Peace Corps better reflect America and Americans? Uh, several elements that fit into that and are very, very, very important to us that we must represent the diversity of America. What is a starting place, what I find interesting, uh, I was at two universities in Texas about a month ago. And at one of the universities, 42% of the undergraduate student population were first-generation Americans. At the other university, over 50% of the students were not white. I mean, just to use that terminology. And what I appreciated is we had the conversations with Mm -hmm. the president and the provost and the deans. One, what is that representing among a particular cohort in the United States today, which is already a cohort of great diversity in universities? And two, how do we reach into that cohort, that diverse cohort? Because as we discussed and appreciated, let's say, for example, with the 40-42% of first-generation Americans that were undergraduate students, they probably didn't have a lot of Peace Corps conversations when they were little kids growing up. Mm -hmm. And that some of the earlier generations come from that international or, uh, you know, going abroad kind of experiences. And so we are much more aggressively thinking through multiple times of talking about Peace Corps during a four-year undergraduate experience to introduce what the idea is, to introduce people to that perspective, that going overseas for two years is a natural process as your own development, particularly with people who, let's say, have not heard about Peace Corps or know much about it at this point. And so the importance of, for freshmen even, and to go into the colleges and departments where we know we have the variety of backgrounds and the variety of experiences being represented when they're freshmen, when they're sophomores, when they're juniors, to help move forward that idea that Peace Corps is okay, that Peace Mm -hmm. Corps is something that you can do, and this is what it will bring you after Peace Corps. And that was really important for me to get a better sense of that a piece of this is introducing, reintroducing Peace Corps. We also are moving more aggressively at uh, minority-serving institutions 
and the we have more uh, recruiters that represent the diversity of whom we are. Uh, we are being much more aggressive about our own visuals, representing the diversity of who we are. At this moment, a third of all our volunteers are of the diversity elements that we think about. Mm -hmm. So we are moving to the direction that represents the diversity. It's a big change in just the few years since you were a volunteer. Mm -hmm. um, and it's because, in part, one, we have the opportunities. They're at the universities. We have to make sure that who we are at the universities, what everything we do, what everything we say represents that. And we start with freshmen, with freshmen and with sophomores mm -hmm. to give enough time for people to think about it and understand it as something that they can do. Mm-hmm. And lastly, uh, this is a question that uh, was said a few different ways uh, in in the comments, and a lot of people liked it. Uh, not the fact that they they like the the situation at hand, but were very interested in wanting to know more about it. But how do you believe that the Peace Corps can improve its response to and care of volunteers experiencing sexual assault while in service? Uh, Peace Corps come a long way. And uh, these last 10 years have, uh, to be totally honest, many years have been very difficult years mm -hmm. in understanding and responding to sexual assault. As I think many people know, in 2011, we pa passed the Cape Pusey Act, which, you know, I wish we didn't have to pass the Cape Pusey Act, but what it did was lay out a whole direction for us. Mm -hmm. And the Far Castle Bill mm -hmm. of this last year has helped us codify. Uh, it's a little less instructing new things, but more importantly, codifying a lot of what we've been putting in place. We have completely, over these last few years, including even the last year, two years, reoriented that we have uh, gone in and looked at a lot of research. We have brought in a lot of experts and have changed and expanded our systems. We are very much a victim-based program. Mm -hmm. We have an Office of Volunteer Advocacy, and that office is in touch with every volunteer who has been sexually assaulted. And that volunteer can choose what she or he wants to say or do. And we will walk with that person throughout. And that is the advocate. That's why it's victim advocacy mm -hmm. is for that person. In addition, Peace Corps has created a very strong sexual assault risk reduction and response program. In this program, and we have an outside council that oversees what we do, it is about training it is about advocacy. It is about working with and supporting situations to help prevent and mitigate sexual assault. For example, uh, we have training, Peace Corps volunteer training on sexual assault and on preventing. Uh, 
and on situational. We have training on, we do bystander training. We have a fair amount of training on looking for all the signs that could lead mm -hmm. to. We have training of all the Peace Corps staff at post. Much of the Peace Corps staff here in, here in Washington, every one of us has to take, thank goodness, an annual training program, a one-hour training program. I just took my second one last week here on this topic. And interestingly enough, with the FAR Castle Bill, we, are, we were instructed to add orientation, sexual assault orientation for host families, counterparts, mm -hmm. and communities. And at first, it's, oh, my heavens, yeah. if I might use that term. <laughs> and what I'm appreciating is that it has become this extraordinary opportunity to bring families and communities where volunteers live and work into this conversation in a way that is enhancing mm -hmm. everyone's understanding and support for mm -hmm. um, not having these circumstances occur. We uh, have annual trainings for all of our key staff. We have a particularly trained person at every post whose sole response, not sole responsibility, but has that key responsibility, mm -hmm. phone 24-7 to be there, who links specifically with the uh, OVA, the Office of Victims Advocacy Counselor here. Mm -hmm. We are being asked by Department of State by USAID, by international NGOs, by other federal offices to help them do their training because we have moved to be one of the strongest leaders in working with this issue, mm -hmm. protecting, honoring, training, preventing, and honoring the victim. Mm -hmm. Well... Thank you very much for all that you've done uh, for Peace Corps and that you continue to do and continuing your service at the highest level. It has been a pleasure taking some time to learn about your Peace Corps experience and your role as that director. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. And there you have it, another episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. I hope you enjoyed this interview with the director of the United States Peace Corps, Jody Olson. I really wish I could have gotten to more questions at the end, but we literally ran out of time. There, there was someone who was outside her office uh, waiting to meet with her. I definitely pushed the bounds and got that last question in, but there were several more questions. I really wanted to get into uh, the talk about mental health and what Peace Corps was doing, its policies, its stance, uh, but we did not have time. I, I, I had to, had to leave. Uh, they were gracious enough to give me a more than an hour to sit down and talk. Uh, but I think the conversation went really well, and I could probably swing a, a future interview, a part two. So I really want to get to these questions. But as I did say in the interview, I printed all the questions off that I received from you all on, on Instagram and the form of my website and handed them to the director. So she had in hand the, the questions that you guys wanted to know about, the things that you were interested in, the concerns that you had. So I definitely tried my best to at least make her aware of the things that you guys were curious about. 
hopefully have another opportunity to speak with her and dive into those those things. Uh, so this was a great interview for me. I really enjoyed it. Uh, let me know what you think uh, in the reviews or reach out via Instagram. Would love to hear from you guys. Until next time, remember, every volunteer has a story. What's yours? <laughs>